Welcome to the Bleeding Blue and Yellow podcast, a podcast covering your favorite crew featuring Peter and David Go. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Bleeding Blue and Yellow podcast. I'm your co-host, Peter Go, alongside David Go, our other co-host. we got a couple things to cover today, a little bit of a drier week uh, as far as the Brewers news go. But we do still have, I mean, a, one big news story, of course, Devin Williams, which, of course, we will be covering. Uh, we'll be covering Devin Williams, Rookie of the Year Award, as well as the other award winners. Uh, briefly touching on uh, the Marlins' move to add Kim Nung as their new general manager. And then also taking a look at the Hall of Fame ballot, which I think is very intriguing this year. There's been a lot of good talent. Uh, I guess really everyone on the Hall of Fame ballot obviously is good talent, but there's been a lot of Hall of Famers inducted over the last couple of years, and it's really the first time that the ballot's a little bit thinner. Uh, so we'll be diving into who some of those eligible players are and some picks on who we think could be elected this year and years going forward. So David, uh, actually, almost forgot. Let me quick uh, throw our trivia question of the day before I pass it off to David to get started. So trivia question of the day is, who are the only three Brewers pitchers to win 20 or more games in a season? So... David, be thinking of that, all of you listeners out there, thinking of that. Who are the only three Brewers pitchers to win 20 or more games in a season? So ponder that. As always, we will cover that at the end of the podcast. David, do you want to start us off with the news over in Miami? Yeah, Kim Nong, uh, an interesting hire by the Marlins. I definitely think that she's very qualified. She's been working in baseball operations for about 30 years, including some very high-level positions. Uh, she was the vice president of baseball operations at the Major League Baseball offices in New York for nine years, uh, the previous nine years. And she's been linked to some general manager openings over that, that period of time, even dating back to 2011 when she was interviewed for the Angels job. So we've seen her name surface, but this is the first time that she actually will get a chance to be the general manager. And not only is she the first woman to be a general manager in Major League Baseball, she's also uh, the first woman of any North American major professional sports team uh, who has a woman as GM, and also the first Asian American GM of any uh, Major League Baseball team. Uh, so a few pretty big um, record-breaking or trailblazing mm -hmm. um aspects of her hire in Miami. Yeah, big news. Like you said, first woman GM in all North American major sports. So that, that's huge. Uh, and you also mentioned um, the only or first Asian American general manager in Major League Baseball. Both both big things, like you mentioned. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see what she's able to do. Miami's kind of in an interesting spot. Of course, they've been a struggling franchise. Uh, this year, they did manage to make the playoffs. And it'll be interesting to see what she does uh, there with, of course, Derek Jeter, the CEO of the Marlins. I do, of course, have to bring up a tweet from Foolish Baseball, uh, at FoolishBB on Twitter. Uh, if you didn't already see this, I, this was a, uh, I, I, like, I, 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 I should have known this was coming, of course, given Derek Jeter as the CEO of the Marlins and given the hate that Jeter gets for his defense, but uh, I did think it was pretty clever when I saw it. Uh, but their tweet, anyways, was, Kim Nung not only brings a wealth of front office experience to the Marlins, she also has 165 more defensive runs saved than Derek Jeter. So uh, kind of a good, clever uh, clever line from Twitter that I had to bring up. Uh, of course, Jeter kind of caught on the tail end of his career when defensive metrics like that started being uh, looked at more by fans and certainly does get a lot of hate for his defense, which 
personally, I think is uh, definitely an overreaction. But big news uh, in baseball over in Miami. So moving over to some Brewer news, of course, biggest news of the week, Devin Williams securing the NL Rookie of the Year, just the third Brewer to do so, uh, if you remember Ryan Braun doing so, as well as Pat Listash. Uh, Williams got 14 first-place votes, six second-place votes, and seven third-place votes. Uh, but again, Williams, we, we've covered him so much already on this podcast, an outstanding year, and well-deserving of the Rookie of the Year honors. Good for Devin Williams uh, to be able to secure that award. Any thoughts, David, to add on, you know, if you thought, I think, I guess I kind of already know that question, that answer, but uh, if, if you thought Williams was deserving, uh, maybe some other thoughts on second or third place? I definitely thought he was deserving. I thought it was really the only fitting way to cap off his his outstanding year. Uh, he was able to edge Jake Cronenworth, Alec Baum, among some other guys. Cabrian Hayes had a very good year in Pittsburgh, too, and I think maybe with the the unique circumstances of the season that potentially helped a relief pitcher win it, it's the first time since Craig Kimbrell in 2011 that we've seen a Rookie of the Year winner go to a relief pitcher. Uh, so a great honor for Williams and um, hopefully the first of many honors over his career. Uh, he has yet to make an all-star appearance, of course, since there was no all-star game this year. Um, and we could see him going forward as kind of a mainstay in the Brewers' bullpen. And on that uh, reliever of the year front as well, um, maybe piling on some honors going forward. And although Williams didn't take home those trophies, uh, he did receive some votes for both Cy Young and MVP. He finished eighth place in Cy Young, uh, earning three fifth place votes. Corbin Burns actually garnered a fourth place vote and 10 fifth place votes, finishing sixth in that race. Williams got one tenth place vote for MVP, so he finished tied for 18th. Um, and, and Craig Council actually, got uh, seventh place in manager of the year voting. He received a first place vote and three third place votes. Kind of an interesting interesting thing uh, to note there. Eight NL managers received votes, uh, which is more than half of the managers in the National League. So kind of funny. Um, kind of, I think, alludes to the, the very tight race across of the National League uh, with a lot of competing teams. Uh, but Don Mattingly actually took home that award. Trevor Bauer took home NL Cy Young. Freddie Freeman taking home NL MVP honors. And over in the AL, Kyle Lewis from the Seattle Mariners won the Rookie of the Year. Kevin Cash, of course, he's been kind of on the uh, in the news taking out Blake Snell too early in Game 6 of the World Series. Uh, but the voting does take place right after the regular season ends before the postseason. Uh, so Cash did take home the AL Manager of the Year. Shane Bieber unanimously won AL Cy Young. Uh, an incredible season for him in Cleveland. And Jose Abreu from the south side of Chicago with the White Sox there, taking home AL MVP. Yeah, interesting. Uh, going back to council, you mentioned finishing seventh and manager of the year. It is interesting that he did receive a first place vote. Um, nothing against council, but I'm, I would be curious as to the reasoning behind the first place vote for council on manager of the year. Again, you mentioned that it was a tight race. There wasn't necessarily one manager that really stuck out like some years there are. Uh, but I'd be kind of curious to hear the reasoning behind Council's first place vote. Uh, and the other thing I want to mention, too, is is Corbin Burns uh, finishing sixth place in the Scion. I mean, we covered this uh, earlier, a uh, fair amount of episodes ago, of course, during the season with Burns, who was right neck and neck in that Scion race. And uh, Bauer closed out the season very, very strong. Um, so I'm not sure that, you know, one start or two starts even for Burns may have made the difference. Uh, but he was right there in that Cy Young race, 
uh, eventually finishing sixth, but definitely don't want to downplay Corbin Burns' year, which was very outstanding as well. Maybe not equally as outstanding as Williams, but great seasons from, from both of those young Brewers' arms and two arms that the Brewers hope to have uh, and to make an impact for many years to come. And lastly, the last bit of news that we will be covering today is uh, the re release of the Hall of Fame ballot for this upcoming year. Last year, we did see um, Derek Jeter and Larry Walker elected from the Baseball Writers Association of America, kind of the traditional voting in that aspect. And Ted Simmons, former Brewer, and Marvin Miller, also former head of the MLB Players Union, going in next year, Miller posthumously. Um, but they will be inducted actually as part of next year's class because they did not hold an induction this year, even though they will be um, under the 2020 class. Uh, but it is interesting to see who may be joining uh, those guys at the Hall of Fame induction in Cooperstown next year. Certainly. It is an interesting class. A couple notable names to mention here. Tim Hudson, Mark Burley, Tori Hunter, Dan Heron, and Barry Zito are a couple names. Uh, you may notice, in addition, Aramis Ramirez, Shane Victorino, even Dan Heron as uh, newcomers to the ballot this year. Uh, but as you notice, a, a weaker class coming in this year, no Derek Jeter, no Mariano Rivera, no no clear first ballot Hall of Famer of the newcomers. And, and really, frankly, I'm not sure any of the newcomers are deserving of the Hall of Fame either in this year or years going forward. Do you see any of those players as uh, having a chance of being inducted into the Hall of Fame either this year or the years going forward? I would be surprised if any of those guys even garnered 5% of the vote, uh, let alone were inducted at some point. A lot of those guys had very good careers, uh, but I don't think that they're Hall of Fame caliber players. Uh, Mark Burley and Tim Hudson each had about 50 wins above replacement over their careers. Solid marks, but they kind of accumulated it through the years. Uh, never were really at the top of Major League Baseball. Um, I don't I don't think either of them took home a Cy Young. Barry Zito did, but he did not have the longevity uh, to be able to um, even be under strong consideration for Hall of Fame. I don't really think that we'll see any of them. Torrey Hunter, nine gold gloves, uh, but I don't think that there's enough in the resume there for him. So it will be interesting with no, no real clear-cut first ballot Hall of Famers and a little bit more carryover. Yeah, certainly agree. Good careers. Uh, you mentioned Burley. Uh, great career over in Chicago. And yeah, Torrey Hunter was outstanding defensively, but uh, that, that's not really enough to, to carry him into the into the Hall of Fame. Uh, but one interesting arm that I think has a very good chance of being elected and may even benefit from the fact that it is a weaker class is Kurt Schilling. Uh, Schilling has been on the uptick uh, over the last couple of years. In 2017, he garnered 45% of votes, moved up to 51% in 2018. 61% in 2019, and then 70% in 2020. So you can see Schilling is moving in the right direction. He does only have two remaining years to be elected, uh, and he would need a 5% a increase, of course, for that 75% requirement in order to be inducted into the Hall of Fame. Is Kurt Schilling somebody that you see is able to take this opportunity of a weaker class and be elected to the Hall of Fame? I do. I, I think even if it weren't a weaker class, that Schilling would actually get in this year. We haven't really seen anybody with 70% not eventually get in, and I do think that this will be the year for him, especially with the weaker class. There hasn't really been anything that he said on Twitter lately that has caused uh, big controversy, yeah. which, you know, whether you agree with that playing a role or not, it does in reality, and we saw him kind of dip down a few years ago because of it. 
I think that Schilling will be the only guy inducted this year. Um, I'm not saying that that's necessarily the only player on this ballot that will get in at some point. Of course, Bonds and Clemens are always the two that you talk about, and I, I'm not really sure that they're going to get in, at least during the conventional baseball writers' time period that they have. They only have this year and next year left on the ballot. Yeah, Bonds and Clemens on the same trajectory of Schilling, excuse me, not same trajectory, but same path as far as um, just two years remaining for all three of those players. And uh, not at that 70% mark that Schilling was able to hit. Clemens at 61, Bonds at 60.7 last year. Uh, they did see some improvement uh, over the last couple of years, but it hasn't been to the same degree of Schilling. And of course, Bonds and Clemens being the two big, uh, argu well, really not arguably, but the two best PED players in baseball and serve as a reference as far as how the Hall of Fame will handle the PED era. I do think that if Bonds and Clemens make it, we will see an influx, even just on this ballot alone. Uh, beyond Bonds and Clemens, we have Andy Pettit, Sammy Sosa, Gary Sheffield. Those are all guys who I think are borderline candidates. Sosa, I think, should make it if not for PEDs. So I think that we're going to see some guys like that go in. Um, Manny Ramirez is another guy who his numbers alone would earn him an election to the Hall of Fame, but I don't know if he will because he even more so than Bonds and Clemens was suspended later on once they became a little bit more strict with the PED testing, and I think that that works against him even more than it may with Bonds or Clemens. Yeah, you mentioned Sosa being uh, a surefire Hall of Famer without the PEDs. Sosa's an interesting case. In his first year on the ballot, he received 12.5% of the vote, and last year he had 13.9%, but in between there, um, he wasn't even able to attain 10%. So like you said, of course you take the PEDs out. Uh, it's a completely different story, but but uh, unlike Bonds and Clemens Sosa, really not even really close to having a shot right now. Uh, interesting to see how Bonds and Clemens could set the precedent for the Hall of Fame, um, but I think it is unlikely that we see them uh, elected in the next two years. Uh, and there are a couple other names to note too. Um, some guys who have had some momentum going forward. Omar Vizquel, who's uh, on his fourth year on the ballot, is trending well um, at potentially having a shot to be elected down the road. Uh, he started out down at 37%, uh, but has reached 52.6%. Um, so potentially an outside chance for a guy like Vizquel. Uh, Scott Rowland, also in his fourth year, um, only at a, a measly 17%, um, but has increased from the 10% that he started. And finally, Billy Wagner. Uh, left-handed reliever, um, definitely garnered some debate in his first year of the ballot. He was absolutely dominant, but didn't have as much uh, time as the other closers like Trevor Hoffman, Mariano Rivera did. Any thoughts on Billy Wagner, Scott Rowland, or Omar Vizquel? I think that Scott Rowland will make the biggest jump of anyone. I don't think that Rowland will be elected this year. He was at 35% last year, and I don't think that 40% gain is really attainable, but I do think that we'll see Roland jump into the 50s, um, and I think Billy Wagner will jump into the upper 40s probably. Uh, we will see that. Wagner's about halfway through his eligibility now, and I think that he's a guy who we'll kind of see on the verge, kind of like we saw with Lee Smith. Lee Smith eventually did make it, but on the Veterans Committee. Vizquel, I think, is only about two years away from election, uh, but I don't think that that is going to happen this year. Yeah, I, I definitely, of those guys, certainly hope to see Wagner elected eventually. I, I think he's 100% deserving. It is a little bit weird how Hall of Fame voters and how the whole process works with a lot of guys starting at much lower percentages and slowly increasing, even though, of course, 
nothing has changed about their career. Uh, certainly kind of an odd way of doing things and just the way that the Hall of Fame voting has gone. Another interesting player is Todd Helton. Uh, you mentioned Walk- Larry Walker being elected last year. Um, and Helton and Walker both have the Coors Field stigma attached to them. Um, Helton's been on the ballot for two years, went from 16.5 to 29.2 last year. Do you see Helton getting past the Coors Field stigma that Walker was able to and having a jump either this year or potentially even seeing himself get to that 75% mark? I think he will jump a little bit this year. And I think that he's a guy who we could see maybe making it in in his eighth or ninth year, depending on how the ballot shakes out. We don't even know who those guys might be um, in eight or nine years. Could be a guy like Justin Verlander um, or someone like that who's on the verge of retirement in maybe two years or so. Uh, but I think that Helton will probably jump into the upper 30s this year. Uh, Gary Sheffield was right around that range. You mentioned him earlier, also a former Brewer. Uh, Sheffield, I think, will also get into the maybe mid to upper 30s, but I don't think that Sheffield will get in at any point. Sheffield's already in his sixth year of eligibility, so it's a little bit more difficult for him. And actually, one other former Brewer who's on the ballot. We mentioned Sheffield. We mentioned Aramis Ramirez, a little bit more recent. Latroy Hawkins is on the ballot this year. Uh, middle reliever, setup man uh, on that 2011 team. Uh, Latroy Hawkins probably won't get any votes, um, and I, <laughs> I, I don't know not. that he's necessarily deserving. I don't know that he's necessarily deserving of getting any votes for the Hall of Fame. Uh, but just one other former Brewer that is on the ballot. Yeah, certainly. So, sometimes those Hall of Fame ballots are are a little bit questionable on some of the guys that you see getting votes. Um, you mentioned, of course, Latroy Hawkins being on there. It is a little bit bizarre. Some of the players that are even on the ballot, but. Um, just covering a couple more players before we get to uh, seeing who you would be voting for and then second, who you're, uh, just to reaffirm your, your final prediction on who do you see being elected into the Hall of Fame. Uh, two interesting names, uh, both big right-handed bats, Jeff Kent and Andrew Jones. Uh, both of them at a low rate, Andrew Jones uh, reaching 19.4% last year, uh, which is up from the around 7% that he started. And Jeff Kent uh, on the ballot for his eighth time, he's up to 27.5%. Any chance you see Kent or Jones having down the road? I think that Jones has a realistic possibility. I think that Jones is a guy who we could see kind of taking a Tim Raines route or Larry Walker. Jones had an excellent peak uh, with Atlanta, but not much outside of that peak. He had nine straight years of 4.9 wins above replacement or more. Uh, That's Hall of Fame caliber peak for sure and he's one of the greatest defensive center fielders of all time over 400 career home runs on top of that (laughs) anchoring the defense in Atlanta during that huge run of division championships Jeff Kent is actually the all-time leader in home runs among second basemen with 377 won an MVP in 2000 but I don't think that beyond that that there's enough in Jeff Kent's resume he's also just finished his seventh year of eligibility he's got three more I don't think that's enough to get him from 27% all the way up past the necessary 75%. Uh, But if I were to cast a a ballot for uh, the upcoming Hall of Fame election cycle, uh, I would put Kurt Schilling on the ballot. I would vote for Scott Rowland, Billy Wagner, Todd Helton, and Andrew Jones. I would vote for those five, uh, and I I would not vote for... Uh, many of the PED guys. I can under certainly understand the argument uh, for many of them, but I don't know if Gary Sheffield is a Hall of Famer without PEDs. I don't know if Sammy Sosa is a Hall of Famer without PEDs. Manny Ramirez 
I know that Bonds and Clemens are, and that's why um, I could see the argument a little bit more, but I also think it's kind of an unlevel playing field, a little bit difficult, and I can certainly understand either way, um, but those would be the five that I would vote for had I had a ballot. Yeah, I'm absolutely with you on the PED guys. Uh, I'm not in favor of letting Bonds and Clemens in. I know there's the argument that you know, some of those guys may have uh, used PEDs during that time and, and just weren't caught, um, but I, I, the principle of it, I, I have a hard time um, accepting the fact that they knowingly cheated, were penalized for it, um, and would be then allowed into the most prestigious class of baseball players in the history of baseball. So I'm with you on, on leaving out Bonds and Clemens as well as all of the newcomers as well. And, you know, switching switching topics a little bit, I, I did mention we, we didn't uh, plan this at all, but I did realize we never really did cover the Red Sox announcing Alex Cora um, coming back as manager after serving his suspension for his role in the sign-stealing scandal in Houston. Certainly we don't need to spend a lot of time, but just want to get your thoughts real quick, David, before we head out today on the Red Sox deciding to bring back Cora uh, to right the ship in Boston. I think he's a good manager. I don't necessarily think that he deserved to get a shot, especially this soon. I could have seen him maybe getting a, a chance in a, a, maybe four or five years instead. Uh, but it seems like the baseball world, especially those within the baseball world, like the players, um, the the executives and the owners, more so even than the fans, have forgiven Hinch and Cora and the guys that go along with it. One thing that I'm kind of kind of uncertain about is then why why does it seem like the baseball world kind of shunned Carlos Beltran? Uh, will we see Beltran get another shot? He was fired without even managing a game for the Mets last year. Um, and I'm not saying that the Mets will rehire him uh, or anything like that, but I think that Beltran deserves uh, another chance and potentially potentially a Hall of Fame uh, induction down the road. Yeah, interesting tie-in to our previous segment there. But yeah, I think Beltran, it, the timing for Beltran was, was really bad. Cora had proved himself as a solid manager already after this came out, so certainly helped him. Red Sox knew that he was a good manager, and I, and I don't disagree. I, I think he is a good manager. Beltron, unfortunately, hadn't had a chance to really prove his worth as a manager, and I think he will get a shot again down the road. I think it will be a couple of years for him. Um, but I totally agree with you. Cora effectively serving just a 60-game suspension for his for being what is described as the primary leader of one of the biggest scandals in baseball uh, was far too little of a punishment. And I, I think teams should have gone out, out of their way to make sure that he served a bigger punishment. You mentioned uh, fans seeming to forgive Hinch and Cora, uh, but not so much Beltron. Fans as well as uh, it seems like players around baseball too, haven't exactly accepted the fact of the players. Um, we did see some of those players getting hit this year, and certainly Trevor Bauer and some other outspoken players voicing their opinion against the players. Uh, but it does seem like the, the managers got off pretty easy um, given the circumstances and how big of a scandal it was. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And I mean, the players didn't receive any punishment. So it's, I think kind of the way that the fans have treated them maybe serves as their sure. punishment, their tarnished reputation. Of course, it's a difficult line to walk. Yeah, certainly. I, I would agree. Players, of course, not getting any form of punishment, but I would say it, it, they did end up serving a pretty big punishment in the way that the fans and players alike uh, treated them for this year, and will probably go forward in their careers, especially some of those bigger bats. So just wanted to touch on that. Uh, 
side comments or a side story. Um, again, Alex Cora uh, being brought back by the Boston Red Sox after serving 2020 as his suspension for his role in the science dealing scandal of 2017 over with the Astros. So before we head out today, uh, we got our trivia question of the day. Uh, if you recall from the beginning of the show, who are the only three Brewers pitchers to win 20 or more games in a season? So, David, we got three starters with 20 or more wins. Who you got? Mike Caldwell, I believe, is one. That would be number one, Mike Caldwell, 22 wins in 1978. Teddy Higuera, is he the second? Higuera tied for second with 20 wins in 1986. And... uh Final starting pitcher guess with 20 wins as well. Uh, would you be kind as to give a hint to the era it was in? Was it in the 70s? That would be correct. Uh, Clyde Wright would be my guess. Incorrect on, on Wright there. Jim Colburn, 20 wins in 1973. Uh, so, yeah, uh, 70s and 80s Brewers pitching, uh, not too surprising. We're not seeing any uh, Zach Davies. Uh, although Davies actually did have 17 wins uh, in a year. Uh, but not as many recent guys, of course, with the trend, especially council era, uh, with us starting pitchers getting uh, less time and generally less wins. Uh, but Mike Caldwell, Brewers starting pitcher, 22 wins in 78. Jim Colburn with 20 wins in 73. Higuera, 20 and 86. Uh, Capuano had 18 wins in 2005. A handful of guys with 18 wins. And then I mentioned Davies with 17 wins in 2017. Actually, Willie Peralta also had 17 wins in 2014. Um, so kind of mm -hmm. some interesting interesting names there, some of those more recent starting pitchers from the Brewers. Yeah, and I guess I'm actually just looking at Clyde Wright real quick. I guess he can be today's random player there of the day. Um, but he won 22 games with the California Angels in 1970. Um, but he was also the Brewers' first 20-game uh, loser in 1974. He went 9-20. and 20. Um, So I'm sure that that's kind of where I... Uh, where that name came to mind uh, was the 20 game loser and he did previously win 20 games he's also the father of Jarrett Wright uh, Indians pitcher who started game seven of the World Series in 1997 um, overall had a, an okay career uh, but another major league pitcher uh, son of Clyde Wright interesting interesting so there you go there's our uh, unintentional random player of the year Clyde Wright how many I'm, of course, I'm not going to actually expect you to know this answer, but uh, I wonder how many pitchers have had a 20-win season and a 20-loss season. That would be that would be an interesting one that uh, I would expect ESPN to pull out uh, on like a Sunday night game. Mm -hmm. Yeah, certainly, certainly can't be many. But either way, again, Mike Caldwell, Jim Colburn, Teddy Higger are the only three starter pitch, starting pitchers for the Brewers to have 20 or more wins in a season. All right, so that should wrap things up today. Just to recap again, Devin Williams, just the third Brewer to win Rookie of the Year. Big news over there, Williams, an outstanding year, uh, capping off a great year for Williams. And then taking a look at the Hall of Fame ballot uh, with a thin class of newcomers this year, David's pick, Kurt Schilling, uh, for this year's class, as well as four other players that he would be voting if he did have a ballot. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. Go Brewers! Thank you for listening to this episode of the Bleeding Blue and Yellow podcast. We'd appreciate if you subscribe, rate, and review our podcast. Make sure to check out our blog at bleedingblueandyellow.wordpress.com and connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at Brewers Podcast.